You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Good evening, everybody. My mic check, mic check. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming tonight to M Pavilion. Um, this tonight's event is being put on by the Institute of Architects. My name's Karen Orcock. I'm on chapter council at the Institute. Uh, we're a member organisation that represents architects and advocates for. Um, architects and architecture in our community, nationally, internationally. Um, tonight's topic um, is new heritage, which I'll get to in a minute. But um, before I do that, I'd uh, just like to acknowledge the Yellowcat Whelan as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. We pay our respects to the land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. It's quite a good way to start with um, a welcome to country uh, because I think it talks about the history of, uh, of, the, of where we live and the things that make us who we are. And that can be um, over a long period of time or even in a short period of time. And that's, um, we want to look at the, the immediate past, I suppose, for today's uh, talk. Um, I also want to thank Monique Woodward, who was going to um, do tonight's talk. Unfortunately, she has bronchitis and can't do it, but she's still sitting here and offering moral support in the background there. So I'm ap apologies to those who are waiting to see the lovely Monique up here. Um, you've got to put up with me. Um, so, okay. So we, um, when we put this out to the speakers. Um, thinking about what heritage was. This is something that's been a really hot topic at the Institute, um, what should be protected, um, some of the buildings that, um, you know, architects really love are up for demolition. And I suppose there's been a lot of debate about whether they should be kept or shouldn't be kept. And so for tonight, we just want to start with um, a definition of UNESCO's definition of what cultural heritage is, which we think is quite a good starting point. Um, it's the legacy of physical artefacts and intangible attributes of a group or society that is inherited from past generations. Cultural heritage includes tangible culture, intangible culture and natural heritage. Following the recent debate regarding, say, Fed Square, we asking our panel tonight, does something have to be old to be protected? What is our contemporary heritage? How can we identify it and how can we protect it? So we have a very broad range of people here tonight. So thanks, everybody, for making time. And um, they're going to self-introduce themselves. And then um, we're going to go back and do... Um, everybody's going to do a sort of five-minute position statement. And then we'll open up to a conversation. So, Matt, start with you. Uh, Matt Gibson, Matt Gibson, Architecture and Design. Sophie Quist, Gale Architects. Hi, my name is Anna Musig. I work also at Gale in San Francisco. Uh, I'm Tanya Davidge. I'm an architect, but I'm also the president of a group called Citizens for Melbourne, and we're fighting the Apple Store at Fed Square. Ross Turnbull with Working Heritage in Melbourne. Uh, Claire Cousins from Claire Cousins Architects, and I'm also the national president of the Institute of Architects. Uh, Ian McDougall from ARM Architects. Okay, thanks, everybody. Sorry, Ross, I just told Ross he was going to start first, but... Um, <laughs> Would you like to take a deep breath? Why not? I was going to hopefully go last and um, make some useful heritage comment uh, in relation to what everybody else has said. But We'll give you a right of reply. <laughs> since I'm kicking off, I want to raise as an example uh, of new heritage and um, the political nature of this conversation, uh, the example of the Sirius building in Sydney. Um, since we're an architectural audience tonight. I assume most people, or yeah, most people would know the serious public housing building in the rocks. Uh, it was recommended by the New South Wales Heritage Council in 2016 for inclusion on the Heritage Register up there. And the minister uh, in question uh, in New South Wales rejected that recommendation. And in fact, the government of New South Wales' intent has been to sell that building. They moved all the public housing tenants out and uh, the building is for sale. I don't believe that that transaction has gone through yet, but um, a great effort has been um, put together by the architectural and uh, public housing community, advocacy community in Sydney to um, 
to fight the decision and so far they've not been successful, although they did manage to get a stay of execution through the courts up there. Uh, and the point, key point I'd like to make about that building is that it's great architecture and it's worthy of being protected on the Heritage Register because it's public housing and it's great public housing because it's good architecture. And those two things are absolutely inextricably linked. It's not just about the building and the architectural form. Um, some people have uh, proposed that perhaps the building could be saved and it could be turned into a hotel or some other form of housing. You know, that would just be a travesty. That's not what um, was significant about that building at all. Uh, and um, I think I'll probably stop rambling on there, Karen, and uh, pass the mic on, but uh, that's where I'd like to kick off. All right, we're going to go over to the guys from Gal's studio. Oh, good, thank you, because I don't know too much about Federation Square. Um, hi, everybody. Um, my name is Anna Music. I'm a project manager at Gale, and Sophie and I are both here um, by invitation of the uh, Metro Tunnel Creative Program to think about what's happening um, in your downtown. But you know, when I was asked to, to speak a bit about the topic of historic preservation, it's very interesting because in the United States, we have precious little <laughs> compared to other countries which most much longer history, precious little to um, preserve. And so in part as a result, historic preservation becomes a tool for all sorts of other political cover. It becomes a political cover. So for example, in San Francisco, the city where I live, um, there's a very, very historic car wash that just must be preserved to stop the terrible condos that are actually providing needed affordable housing in our city. Um, so in general, the topic becomes a quite divisive um, tool, even though it's meant to preserve um, important cultural legacy. And so there's actually two things that I wanted to, to bring to the table on this topic um, that are different from that sort of political topic, which is, I think, something that must also be present here, um, to really grapple with the very nature of what historic preservation actually means. Um, and the first is the topic of Confederate monuments in the United States. You guys have probably heard about um, um, folks taking down sometimes um, by protest, um, illegally, but taking down Confederate monuments that um, of, of uh, General Lee um, put up in the South, um, some of which are, were put in during um, the Civil War, before the Civil War, um, and some of which were put in after Reconstruction um, during civil rights um, with the purpose of terrorizing black people in the United States. And so recently, there's been a great um, conversation that has actually divided people in, in ways that are surprising um, to me as an urban designer. Because um, in, some, in some ways, those monuments are um, legacy of, of hatred, hatred that's in our cult, that is in our culture um, that we have to grapple with still. Um, but in another pers perspective, um, that those that sort of same um, hatred is actually hate speech and is not protected and should be removed. Um, and so there's people who actually you know are all um, are all. Um, fighting for um, social justice and racial justice in the United States context who have really different perspectives on what should happen to Confederate monuments. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if, if other folks have, have similar um, stories here um, in the Melbourneian context. Um, and per personally, I'll say that my, my perspective on this topic is that those um, Confederate monuments that were put in during Reconstruction during civil rights that were actually meant to um, terrorize black people should be removed. Um, but there are some monuments that are part of our you know, um, terrible history of racism in the United States that should stay um, as a way to discuss um, something that is still very present and really not, um, not grappled with and, and not, um, not dealt with in our, in our contemporary society. I want to share just one other note, which is that I'm here um, from Gale Architects. And Gale, Yan Gale um, is focused on making cities for people. He came here uh, in the uh, 1994 um, to come and think about how to make Melbourne a, a better city for people. Um, and I know you guys are all maybe know his legacy much better than I do. Um, but you know that focus is really not actually about architecture, but about the life between buildings. Actually, the public life that architecture creates. And so I wonder if we might include in this conversation um, how 
how public life and a, and a culture of place can be the thing that we focus on preserving um, more than, than just aesthetics, which I think is actually at the root of a lot of the Federation Square um, controversy. So thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. Um, I'm Sophie Quist, and I am also with Gail. Uh, I work with Anna in our San Francisco office, but I'm actually from Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, and um, what I'd like to bring to the table today uh, is based on um, sort of a personal understanding of our preservation in, in Denmark uh, and some of the changes that is currently happening there. So um, related to that, also the importance of, of understanding what people value and creating metrics that can help defining those values. Um, currently, there's a big debate um, in my um, hometown area of Copenhagen about a brutalist building that housed the Viking Museum. And uh, it's become very politicized. Um, and uh, actually, the building has been decertified. It has had the certification of cultural heritage for years. And now it was politically decided to remove that certification. And that has, of course, spurred uproar and in the architecture uh, society there might be a higher appreciation and value of some of the brutalist architecture than there is in in the more pu public facing but this particular building um, has some challenges with structure that are economically challenging for the developer and for that reason um, this the state the government has decided to decertify it I think what this brings to the table is like an interesting uh, conversation that needs to happen about why is this happening, what do we actually value, and also maybe go back and reevaluate what we certify and why, um, and sort of bringing it up to present times a little bit to the conversation happening here in Melbourne around Fed Square, that um, maybe it's not enough uh, how old it is or what architectural... Um, uh, significance it has. Maybe it needs to have more. Maybe it needs to have like meaning for people that experience it as part of their everyday life. Um, and add to that, um, I want to uh, say that many of you may know, like Denmark is a social democratic society, um, and is based on sort of um, the the common good and what people appreciate and value across the board, and not just economically driven and I think for me that's a really important thing to preserve. Um, living in the United States now I see some different takes on development um, and also um, sort of a little bit of a lack of understanding of your own cultural heritage um, in the States uh, in terms of, um, of, of <coughs> defining some metrics that, that puts value to things that, that may not first and foremost, seem architecturally significant. Um, yeah, I think I'll stop there. I can keep going. Thanks. Um, I thought I would talk a little bit about, um, I suppose, some examples at the moment that are, have got uh, potentially uh, limited fate, um, which is Anzac Hall, a DCM-designed extension to the War Memorial in Canberra. Um, there's been some news uh, in the paper on the weekend, which was sort of timely. Um, the, I suppose the challenge uh, we're facing at the moment, um, culturally, and the profession, I suppose, is most concerned about it, but I think it's always reassuring when that uh, worry is far broader than just within our profession, um, is the lack of value or um, the value placed on our cultural heritage uh, and um, new heritage in Australia. Um, I think Fed Square is a great example. Um, even um, Sirius is another good example. Uh, and then also even the, um, I suppose, the lack of respect that the, the government in New South Wales showed to the Opera House. The challenge with um, the case of um, Anzac Hall is that... Um, we get politicians or you know, directors of particular public institutions who have an agenda to um, demolish uh, a 17-year-old um, building uh, that was very um, uh, executed very sympathetically to the War Memorial, which is um, 
one of our most visited um, buildings in Australia. Um, it won the Sir Zelman Cowan Award, so it's a highly awarded building. Um, and that there's this sense that a 17-year-old building, there's something bigger and better and, and the government's looking to support spending $500 million to replace it. So, interestingly, we were able to, um, at short notice, get a meeting with Brenda Nelson, the director of the War Memorial last Wednesday, and had a meeting. And the astounding thing was the information that he was prepared to share with us and not saying it was off the record, so it all went into the newspaper on Sunday, um, much to his horror probably, but, um, but that they had actually looked at with these business cases to se secure the, the funding, 18 different schemes in this business case, developed business case. Um, and when we questioned... Uh, how many actually retained Anzac Hall. He said all of them, apart from the one that we've chosen. Um, he also said that um, others were cheaper than the proposed version. Um, and he acknowledged that, that it's only a business case, that they do need to go back out to the, um, I suppose, to the market for an architect to complete the work. But this complete disregard or um, disposability of um, architecture... But I think it's more than just the building and the sheer waste and the sustainability issues... Um, the, the same day in Canberra last Wednesday was uh, the Institute hosts an, hosts an annual um, Griffin lecture at the Press Club uh, and Tom, uh, Tim Ross gave the address and he spoke a lot about um, modern heritage as well and spoke really eloquently, I think, about um, the value. It's not just about the fabric. It's these buildings that form our cultural memories and cultural history uh, and the importance that... And, and he talked a lot about Bo Morris, which Matt's going to talk about. Um, the importance that we place on uh, that, that heritage doesn't have to be 100 years. I mean, the Arts Centre and Hamer Hall are, are great examples. I can't remember the, how young they were when they were um, listed. But um, I think, I suppose, we need... These buildings need a voice, and I think the profession's trying to bring that voice. But more importantly, we really need the public um, to also... Um, uh, have that voice for these buildings. So. Thanks, Claire. Um, yeah, I, the the issue of heritage, um, I think, is only just becoming a bigger and bigger issue, and, and it'll only become bigger and bigger. I, I see. Um, um, I mean, our cities are changing rapidly. They're changing in a chaotic way. Um, uh, it's a bit scary. It's a bit risky. It's uncertain, um, and uh, you know, Melbourne's going to be eight million in 30 years. Um, so, you know, with that change, something's going to give and heritage is, um, heritage is going to give, you know. Obviously, it's going to, it's going to have to give. Um, but it's rather than this tabula rasa kind of just nuke it and get rid of it and um, um, not consider and not kind of delve deeper, um, uh, I think that the approach has to be to, um, you know, to, to delve deeper, to actually kind of, work out, can we adapt these things? Is there a way to um, look at, um, you know, adapting and not just, um, yeah, not just, uh, you know, it should be only at the point that, okay, we've, we've crossed that bridge, we can, there's no way we can adapt this, there's no value in, in keeping this building that we then go to a point of, okay, then we decide to demolish it. And I just don't think in many of these cases, I mean, the DCM building, you know, how can that, not be of value. Um, I, I, I just can't see that. Um, so, uh, so, so, what do we do about this? And how? I, I, I find it um, interesting that um, uh, I don't know. It seems that there's different laws and um, different different kind of uh, ways of carrying out heritage in different states. Um, the Bo Morris example is a case where um, the the council have apparently. So there's all these beautiful mid-century modern houses in Beaumaris uh, which are being demolished. Um, heritage overlays have been... <coughs> or heritage studies have been carried out and uh, Council on two occasions has decided not to implement the heritage studies, which I think is just about political pressure. It's about votes. Um, and so it's meaning that... Um, I mean, they have offered a, a scheme where you can self-nominate your house for a heritage listing, but as if anyone's going to do that. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, can Heritage Victoria step in here? I hear, I hear New South Wales are slightly different to Victoria in the way they deal with things. Um, but if it's left to councils, it's just not going to happen. And Bayside's a good example of this where, um, yeah, they've had heritage studies. They've decided to ignore the heritage studies. They've actually engaged the heritage studies themselves, paid for them, 
but then have ignored them on two occasions, is, is my understanding. Um, and so, yeah, we're losing our, you know, this legacy, this, 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 these great buildings. Um, and, and, you know, why is, why is heritage important? It's because it tells us something about who we are. It's, it's, um, it's, um, it tells us something about the past, even... Um, that's back on again. Um, I don't know. It, all of our history is important, you know. So it's um, um, and it kind of instructs us about where we're going. So Australia's a young country. To, um, to to understand where we're headed, we need to kind of hang on to this this legacy. Um, so um, look, I think it's about adaptation, and I think it's about um, uh, it's about dealing with things in a in a in a professional way as opposed to a political way. Okay, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about Fed Square now. And we are right in the middle of the heritage uh, process at the moment. So the National Trust, of who we have some wonderful people here in the audience, have not, they nominated Fed Square um, for heritage listening to the Victorian Heritage Register. Uh, and that nomination was assessed and it was found by Heritage Victoria, basically, uh, to meet, let me see, I'm not great on these, and somebody pull me up if I get anything wrong, six of the eight criteria for listing. And that, I said, is that good? Because I'm not sure. And apparently that is amazing. It's absolutely fantastic. So I might just quickly swing through these because we're right in the middle of it. Um, it meets criterion A, importance to the course or pattern of Victoria's cultural history. So... Um, and it's quite interesting because I actually didn't know this initially, but Federation Square was built to commemorate Federation. That's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Um, you know, and it has some incredibly <laughs> significant um, artworks. Uh, you know, the Neerum New work by Paul Carter in it is also a commemoration of Federation. Um, so it's quite interesting too because when we think about commemorating different points in our time, we often think about monuments or statues and we don't think about Federation Square. Uh, in the same way, but I think this is a really beautiful way to um, commemorate something by building something useful, not by building an object or placing an object somewhere, but actually creating a place um, that can create its own kind of cultural significance, you know, as an ongoing monument or a living monument um, to something that is incredibly important to Australia, obviously. Um, it doesn't satisfy criteria B or criteria C, so we'll leave them out. Um, it's pretty hard to satisfy criteria C, I think. Um, uh, uh, potential to yield information that will contribute to an understanding of Victoria's cultural history. So I think that's kind of archaeological remains and things like that. Um, criterion B, sorry, was possession, possession of uncommon, rare or endangered aspects of um, Victoria's cultural history. Now, it does have a little relevance to that. Public squares are incredibly rare, uh, building typologies, but this is better satisfied under the next criteria, criteria D. Importance in demonstrating the principal characteristics of a class of cultural place, um, places and objects. And so this is the, uh, the public square argument. It's incredibly important as a very fine example of a public square in Australia. And I think um, we're going to... I'm interested in talking about age too, maybe a little bit quickly at the end, or maybe we can get to that in the conversation. But what's really interesting, for example, about Fed Square is that we can look at Fed Square as being almost 100 years in the making. So when Hoddle laid out the grid, there was no provision uh, for public open gathering spaces. And that was very a very conscious reaction to kind of colonial government mentality um, and even when we got city square finally the way that was designed was to consciously um, disperse people who might gather in that space because they were very um, aware of uh, war protests happening at the time um, so when we finally got fed square as a space where you could protest and gather and um, say sorry and commemorate and uh, celebrate our culture um, you can see it as part of that beautiful timeline of Melbourne's history. Uh, criteria E is importance in exhibiting particular aesthetic uh, characteristics and so that's the architecture essentially and Fed Square is internationally recognised. So it's going up for a state heritage listing um, but it's one of the very few examples of its type in the world because of the um, way the economy was working. At the time Fed, Fed Square was built, this type of architecture, this style of architecture 
um, was not getting funded and especially not to the extent that Fed Square um, was. I think it's also one of the most awarded projects in the history of the RAIA in Victoria. So um, that goes to its significance. Criterion F is importance in demonstrating a high degree of creative or technical achievement um, at a particular period. Um, so uh, it's a great example of the use of very er early computer-aided design um, and it also has some great sustainability features in it that were um, used early. So there's the labyrinth underneath it which has to do with passive heating and cooling of Fed Square. And Criterion G is a strong or special association, I think this one's my favourite, um, with a particular community or cultural group for social, cultural or spiritual reasons. Um, and, you know, we can think about what the kind of uh, cultural groups use Fed Square now. Um, and I think that it's been an incredibly important place for Victorians to be in. The last one is a special association with the lives and works of a person or group of people. Um, and, and an importance in Victoria's history. So it obviously has an association with lab architects and also Bates Smart architects who have an incredibly uh, long history in Victoria. Um, so the argument that Fed Square is quite young um, doesn't actually matter for heritage. Uh, we don't, apparently, we don't really assess that uh, in Australian kind of heritage listings. Um, but you can see that Fed Square has been incredibly, has become incredibly significant in an incredibly short amount of time. Um, so for me, the social and cultural uh, significance is the most important thing. And often, I think, as an architect, and I know that I'm guilty of this, uh, when we think about heritage, we think about bricks and mortar. Um, but in reality, heritage is much more than that. It's about our attachment to place and how the buildings uh, that we know and use and love um, can actually help facilitate that attachment to place. Um, and I might just finish by touching a little bit on uh, the politics of the situation because I think that... Um, that's something we can also discuss a bit later. But um, this has been an incredibly charged political decision. So the decision to put an Apple store in Federation Square was announced three working days before Christmas last year. And forgive me if I sound a little cynical, but it um, feels like they were trying to sweep something under the rug there. Um, and we know that, uh, you know, politicians, once they've made decisions, don't want to back down. And this is actually why the heritage listing is really interesting because the planning minister, Richard Wynne, can actually call in heritage. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but he can actually kind of cut this off. He can invoke his authority as the planning minister um, and stop it getting heritage listing. Apparently that doesn't happen very often, um, but I think it would be outrageous in this case. So we're very much hoping it doesn't happen. Um, the heritage submissions finish in uh, the middle of December, December 16th, and you can head to the National Trust website or to our website, which is ourcityoursquare.org, and make a submission or find out how to make a submission. Um, and I would personally love everybody to talk about social significance, a story that um, of theirs personally that connects them to the square. I know when I write our submission, it's going to be about our fight to save Fed Square and the social significance that that has for me and our group um, and Fed Square as well. So thank you. Um, I guess I'm going to talk about an identical situation, only rather than it be in the capital city with a large number of um, state and national institutions in it, it's a small regional centre, a community centre, a cultural centre in Marion in South Australia, which some months ago a number of members of the um, City Council of Marion uh, announced that they were demolishing it um, to build a hotel. Um, as part of a wonderful pu public-private partnership process which would deliver jobs in the area of Marion and would um, also replace the, uh, the facilities that were in the Marion Cultural Centre in the hotel. Um, Marion is a suburb, um, what's it similar to in Melbourne? It's probably a bit like um, Frankston, maybe, maybe Dandenong. Um, it's a... Uh, a suburb that has no uh, has demolished pretty well all of its um, 19th century buildings. Um, its town hall is a, a pretty nondescript 1980s office building, um, and it's actually identified by the largest shopping centre in in South Australia. So um, instead of it 
um, being known as a suburb and a region, it's known as a shopping centre, a bit like Chadston. So when you say you're going to Marion, you're going to the shopping centre. Next door to it is a little building that's, um, for those of you who don't know it, is actually made out of the letters of Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N. Um, and it houses um, a library, uh, the busiest library in the, uh, in the region, a small art gallery. Um, uh, when it opened, it was so successful they had to double the staff. It's an A-grade gallery. That means it actually um, has punching way above its weight, even though it's quite small. But it means it can take collections from this, the central uh, art gallery in South Australia. Uh, and a little theatre, a 250-seat flexible theatre cabaret. So, um, for some reason, um, the council, a number of councillors decided that the value of the land was so fabulous that um, you couldn't possibly put a hotel anywhere else. Um, I've, I tried to do the maths on this and I couldn't work it out. Um, but it's this sort of myth of the idea of the replacement. The building is 18 years old. So, at first point, it's a complete waste. It, the, the outside of the building is actually lined in copper. It'll last 100 years and they're going to turn it into landfill. Um, the, uh, there's been... Uh, first of all, there was a bit of an outcry amongst the architectural profession. Um, it won a couple of awards. Um, it's a suburban cultural centre, so, you know, it doesn't get the high profile. However, it actually got quite a bit of coverage in Domus magazine and uh, is the only South Australian building that appears in the Encyclopedia of 20th Century Architecture, the big fade on book. However, the... The biggest um, group who've got involved with it are a number of people who are my generation and quite a bit older um, who use the library. The facilities like this, um, I mean, Australia has not got a good history, particularly probably since about 1970, of building cultural facilities in, in, um, in suburbs. Um, and the people are kind of outraged that someone would just say, oh, no, we'll build another library for you. Um, in, the, in the hotel. This is the myth of um, the developer-led public facilities. Um, to build Angel Place in Sydney, in the centre of Sydney, Angel Place is a recital hall, the AMP Tower was built on top. It's a 50-storey building. Um, and the profits from that went to build Angel Place, but also Sydney City Council had to pay a bit of money for it too. So that economics of that couldn't make it work. When they, uh, the MTC wanted to build a new theatre in Southbank, um, they'd done four years of studies, the university did four years of studies, that if they build apartments on top, they'll actually make so much money they'll be able to build a theatre. It didn't work. Federation Hall in Tasmania, when it was built as part of the hotel, is a very compromised concert hall and there's no access to it because the hotel uses it all the time. So this myth of the developer-led, and it's a bit... The Apple is a similar sort of proposition, the idea that the Apple store will make Federation Square, which everybody probably knows, is not a cash cow. It's a public um, space which gets government subsidies. Oh, what, what an outrage. You know, like it's a fantastic um, facility. So the idea that the Apple will help overcome whatever short-term operating costs they have is ridiculous. Um, the, government, the, the government's mission has to be to provide cultural facilities. And the idea that you'll just knock them down when they're 18 years old, 17 years old, whatever, it's just absurd. And uh, so there has to be measures brought into place which can recognise both the facilities and also important um, uh, facilities within a community. I mean, the, the, there's a, there was a lot of debate at the time about the building. We got quite a lot of flack over it being, oh, are these guys joking, they've made a building out of the letters. Um, but it be became adopted by the community. So that sort of instance, the belief that we'll just get rid of it and it'll solve the fact of, um, you know, uh, any land value or political ambition to get um, some points on the board is just absurd. I should also um, say that um, the heritage structures that exist need to be capable of understanding that things can be retained and changed. So when we did Hamer Hall, uh, a high-level um, minister in one of the governments, not saying which, said, why don't you just knock it down? Yeah, there, but there are people who like it. There's the Truscott group, there's the Grounds group, there's the people who use it. What are you talking about knocking it down? So we worked with Heritage Vic to show that you can change buildings. Um, when Sangala built on front of um, um, St Peter's, 
uh, I don't know if the Heritage Council said, no way, Mr Sangali, you can't do that. The outcome is pretty good. You can add to buildings, you can make them, um, you can reuse them. So the heritage system should be about acknowledgement of the existing fabric, the importance of the fabric, and how important and how well controlled any changes to it are. That's actually the other thing with the process of the apple, but I'll stop there. Thanks, Ian. I think it's really um, the topics, the words that have come out to me are well, politics is one, um, disposability. I mean, this trend, as we're saying, you know, 20-year-old buildings that are being just, um, uh, you know, knocked down for something new. I mean, how can we support that anyway as a society, as, you know, in the next 100 years, how can we support that... Um, uh, that use of resources, I think that's a really critical thing as well. We have to... Um, th there's a broader question about growing population and resources and, you know, how do we move on from that, I suppose. But, um, Ross, I thought it uh, might be good for you now to, to have your right of reply at the end of everybody. Um, my right of agreement, I think, <laughs> with, with everybody. Um, one of the things about working in the, the heritage field is that... Um, the heritage hammer, if you like, is one of the few instruments we actually have to deal with problems in the political manipulation of the built environment. And it, it, I've got to say, even though I'm in the field, it's, it's not necessarily always fit for purpose. And sometimes you have to hit things with it, even though it's actually not really the right way to address the issue. Often it's poor management, um, political management of, often, uh, the fact that people don't like certain aspects of the development industry means that the heritage hammer is often bought out to try and um, uh, retain what uh, people view as, as um, amenity that belongs to the public. And um, the Heritage Act, it's you know, it's try it tries to be a lot of things to um, to 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 cover a lot of purposes and um, the government updates it and the industry has input into that updating. But one of the things we see when we talk about each one of these um, places that are at, uh, at stake at the moment, they're all unique. They, they are all individually... You know, heritage listing is actually a celebration of the uniqueness of place and we try and then manipulate and protect that with this one piece of legislation and, and the borough charter. And, um, it, you know, it can be a fraught, fraught process. It doesn't always work out the same way and, and it requires endless argument and endless um, uh, effort by people like yourself, Tanya, um, who, who stand up and fight the power. I mean, that's actually quite, quite interesting, isn't it? Because I think, I think when heritage is used or only viewed as a hammer, then we actually miss its nuances and the kind of, um, you know, we have the... Uh, we miss the opportunity to engage more deeply with it. And, and you know, this for me, I think, you know, Federation Square is an outstanding example and I think it should be heritage listed, I'm absolutely convinced. But in many ways, um, you know, this was a political decision and we need to hold our governments accountable because, as Ian said, they should be providing our community and cultural spaces. That is what they do. They shouldn't be facilitating development necessarily as their first point of call. We need to be building these community places that bring people together and make place and make the city of Melbourne or make Marion. And I know that building and it's beautiful and it would be a huge loss for that to be lost. We need to, you know, we need politicians who are going to step up and at the moment they're not stepping up at a state government level um, and doing this. Can I ask? I mean, there's... We could... This is devil's advocate stuff, right? So don't, don't lynch me. But, you know, there's one that says, well, we're only taking out a small piece of it. We're not getting rid of Fed Square. But, but also, how do you... And the other arguments from Fed Square that says, well... Um, the building doesn't really work anyway. I mean, how do you propose, you know, how to address that? Or, I mean, are you advocating don't change the building at all? Or how do you... How does, how does Fed Square also then adapt over time to the pressures on it? Because I think it's losing a couple of major tenants and, yeah. 
Oh, my God, I don't know where to start. There's so many things I could say. No, 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 it's fantastic. And I should be able to answer all these questions, and I can. Um, so we could start with the building. The building itself, if you go into Fed Square, that's actually a huge part of Fed Square. We say it's one of the buildings, but there's only three buildings that kind of surround that square, you know, if you look up into it. And that's actually a very, very large um, uh, component of the square. Um, the other thing, I suppose, that's, that's being lost, you know, we talk about the fact that Fed Square might be losing tenants. So the government argument, one of the gov key government arguments around Federation Square at the moment is that Fed Square is losing money. Um, that's actually false. Uh, well, it's um, accounting, shall we say. So what happens is, is that Fed Square is actually cash flow positive. What turns it into the negative by about $60 million, which is small change for the government, what tips it over the edge, is the fact that they depreciate the buildings as an asset. Now, the fact that you're depreciating assets that you shouldn't ever sell because they're community public space seems to be beside the point, but the government are using that argument. Currently, Fed Square can't take government funding because of the way it's set up. So it's set up like a private corporation. It can't take operation, operational funding, unlike the Botanic Gardens, you know, swimming pools, for God's sake. The convention centre uh, takes money. Um, so the Apple Store is actually a symptom of the issues that are facing Fed Square. It's, actually, it's not a solution. Um, so, yeah, so it's actually quite a complex range of issues that I think that have led us to this point and we're looking at it as a quick fix um, and it's not. Can I, can I add to that? Um, there was a discussion... Um, around what if, what if you had to do that change that was, I would have thought there's, the whole process that went through was, um, was hopeless because if you said, okay, well, the people who won that competition were young architects, it was the first major project they'd done, if you wanted to make changes to the building, why not write some constraints about what it is, about the exterior skin or whatever, and run a competition for some young architects to do the work? What, there's the brief, now you do it. Let's do the change. Let's bring the next generation into that fold and, and, and add to the, um, the cultural texture of it. But to just say, no, it's out, and by the way, we'll get um, old Foster to have a go at it. <laughs> you know, like, really? It's, just, it's ridiculous. Claire, can I ask, um, do you think, I mean, we're, there's a lot of architects here. I mean, are we talking about saving architecture for architecture's sake? No, I think that's what people think sometimes, which is why it's so important that we rally people outside of the profession. But I think, I suppose, just quickly on Fed Square too, I think the other thing is um, it's that there, there will be necessary, perhaps, operational changes over time and, and it's the process was completely flawed and secretive, it seems, and um, even having a master plan. Like, the, the corner side is being opened up anyway to facilitate a new tunnel entry. So, so it's it's... And the same is said for Anzac um, Hall. Apparently, they've been in discussions for four years about the process. Um, and it's only just been announced two, three weeks ago. So, I forgot the question. Oh, uh, beyond the profession, yes. Um, no, well, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's... I think too often um, the perception of architects are that we're perhaps self-serving and trying to protect our patch. Um, and I think uh, many, um, particularly... Procurers of architecture and government don't actually see um, that many architects are more, much more altruistic than that, and much more have the uh, the built environment's best interests at heart. So it, it is that advocacy piece that we do need to be loud and rally on behalf. But I think that's why it is great when we have non-architects singing, you know, getting involved, particularly in um, Sirius was a great example. And I think that the challenge some of those projects are is while many of us sitting on this panel probably love brutalism, as I do, um, the public, many people couldn't quite understand what was special about it. And I think to back up what Ross said, there was also what it represented as a building. It was beyond the building itself and its occupants. It was also the green bands and the, the political message it actually had in its time of construction. So, so we do need... It's a bit like clients are often our best advocates because they sing the praises of why a building works and why architects... You know, why good design should be valued. I think the same goes for um, advocating for the need to preserve, you know, new heritage. Yeah, I think it, it talks about... Sorry, it... it you know, we talk here about cultural heritage and I think 
even from an architectural perspective, Fed Square is is much more than just a bunch of buildings. It is actually, it is so much about cultural heritage. I, I'm a great believer that no one really cares what the buildings look like at Fed Square. As the public, I mean, if you ask the public whether they thought the buildings at Fed Square were good, they'd probably say no. But if you ask them if they thought Federation Square brings something to our city, they would say yes. And that is exactly what we're talking about, so. I, I, I don't think that's right. Oh, oh. I, <laughs> I, and I was going to just say to Claire that the evidence that the community are really interested in architecture and, and love it, go to open house. Like, it's packed. People just want to see what buildings are like and see the ideas in buildings. Oh, I was going to say, Bo, Bo Morris Modern is exactly the same. These are some, a lot of them are non-architects. as an interior designer or two, but they have got a massive following because um, people love these, these mid-century modern houses, these legacy houses that make Melbourne what they are. And they're just getting on board and it's just snowballing. And it's, it, it is and it will. And it's great that we're having debates like this. We're having... Um, and the more of this that happens, um, uh, the Robin Boyd Foundation's doing a series soon. And so the grouping together of like-minded parties like Heritage Victoria and National Trust and o, the, uh, Victorian uh, OV... The, the government <laughs> architect. Um, all these parties coming together is... is yeah. Is going to become bigger and bigger, and it's a great thing. And I think it's this is the only thing that's going to overturn politics. It's a groundswell of people coming together, and it's starting to happen. You know, but we've also talked. Um, sorry, uh, I was just going to add something quickly on Bo Morris. But I think something Tim Ross said last week in his Griffin lecture was, if you look at something like Palm Springs, which is almost a little bit of a um, museum town in that it was um, it sort of went out of favour, and then. They weren't short of land and so they built... They didn't knock things down. They built in other locations. And also the, the lack of rainfall almost helped the preservation because it was very dry and there's not as much rot in those buildings. But Tim had a statistic, because he is quite involved in Modernism Week over there, that that now generates $45 million a year in tourism. And I think often the economics is the thing that... That's the only thing politicians think about. And so sometimes is it that do we actually have to reframe the argument in that it's... Because I, I really think sometimes they're just not going to get it. They don't even get that the Opera House was a balls up, you know, that, like, and there was such public outrage um, and they still think, what are, the, what are you people talking about? And so, you know, maybe is it about how do we try and put that value on it, you know, and he, uh, Tim was advocating it that, that there's some fantastic mid-century houses in, um, in Canberra, you know, that why not create your own Modernism Week there or in Beaumaris, which is what Beaumaris Modern's trying to do and actually sort of try and capitalise on it that way. I think, though, one of the challenges you have in Beaumaris is how do you get these things protected when a lot of the owners don't want to protect them because they see it as uh, an imposition on them financially? I mean, do you guys have any experience from... I, I don't mean to sort of... <laughs> But, I mean, internationally, have you got any um, experience that you, you can say no? <laughs> I feel like I woke you up. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, the, the question is... Well, just, I mean, the struggle we get... Sorry. The struggle we get... Here, sorry, I'll give it back to you in a sec. Um, the struggle we get here is that, um, you know, in, there's lots of people who think these buildings are worth preserving... But the owners don't want to preserve them because they see that if they've got a building that has a heritage listing on it, that well, and it'll impact on their value. Yeah, lower value. Yeah, lower value. And it's a real battle. Now, in lots of ways, some people really love their houses and never going to knock them down. But when because, you know, this is their biggest investment, it becomes a real issue for them. And that's one of the struggles, I think. And I think it's just... And it's a temporary... Sorry. It's, it's just a temporary fix, all this stuff. And they, these people don't know, you know... Um, um, they, they, they want to sell it, they want to get a couple of townhouses put on it by a really ordinary developer and uh, on it goes, you know. It's, um, um, so, you know, it, it, it's up to us and it's up to the council, it's up to Heritage Victoria, all of us to come together and actually, um, you know, make it known that we're, this, 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 this is a greater good here and this is about our city, this is about 100 years' time. What's Melbourne going to be like? Is it going to be full of shocking townhouses? And um, really ordinary, you know. Yes. Right, yeah. <laughs> and that's why I think some of the people that... Sorry, we're not giving you much chance to talk. Um, the people that do live in them... that I've got a couple of friends that live in mid-century houses in Beaumaris and they see their 
they see it as a privilege and a, that they're the custodian for now, you know, that they see that it's that their role is to preserve yep. those houses for future generations. But the challenge is those people are few and far between because most people are worried about the diminished land values. Yeah. And ma maybe I, I they don't so. understand, sorry, maybe they just don't understand the, the, and the case studies of how they can actually, you know, how a, a mid-century modern, modern house can be adapted and great value can come from it, more value than a couple of townhouses. One of the issues I think there is that um, in a place like Belmaris, uh, every individual house is a freestanding house on a block of land and the impetus to preserve doesn't have the same weight as, say, in East Melbourne or Carlton Terrace houses where it's actually integrated into the streetscape. If you've got your own freestanding house, you think, well, this is a whole lot of development potential and you know, it's my asset. Um, it's, not, it's not situated primarily in your psyche as a part of the local built environment. Okay, so I'll just say... <laughs> That, the, the question actually hadn't occurred to me. Like, I'm thinking about, you're, you're speaking of sort of um, residential structures that have historic value. I'm thinking of places like New Orleans in the United States or old craftsman houses in Berkeley. And the people who live in those places, either they're sort of all, all left to rot and it's really lucky that someone has the resources to fix them up and bring them back into good health as structures, or they're owned by people who either love them and they get great personal value from them, or they monetize them and turn them into, I don't know, Airbnbs or sell them to someone who, who would care for their historic quality. I think in the United States, it's so much more about um, institutional structures that have value. Like in Penn, you know, in New York City, Penn Station sparked the United States um, historic preservation movement because it was um, demolished. And that actually was the reason that Grand Central Station be became, you know, the wonderful place that it is, or is still the wonderful place that it has always been. Um, so I, I think the pace of growth here is so incredible, actually. That's just really been striking me. This is the first time I've been here, um, that we don't, we don't quite see that scale of growth in the United States. Ian, can I ask you a question? Because I know um, uh, I was at a talk you gave recently talking about procurement methods and value in architecture and buildings and things like that. And we're talking about these disposable buildings or how a lot of buildings are becoming disposable do you think that because that probably a lot of the buildings that are probably targeted for demolition might have been um, part of more contemporary procurement methods as well so um, sort of PPPs and things where you would not have had let's say the gallery like you get older buildings say in Canberra for example that might have had um, much more traditional procurement methods and Perhaps the there's more time in the architecture, there's more time in the buildings. Um, and then you get these uh, more contemporary um, procurement is fast and furious and money-driven. And do you think that has something to do with some of these, um, these buildings that maybe aren't you know, being briefed properly and a whole bunch of other things as well? Um, uh, the inference there is that the buildings like that, uh, well, the, you know, like Marion or something like that, is, is built to a lesser quality. No, I don't think that's the case. My reference to the PPPs is more to do with um, uh, characterising the shifting of public, um, the use of public money from um, what, it, what should be done is actually ensuring that we have good infrastructure, cultural infrastructure, community facilities and things like that, to um, uh, funding methods which allow that to be off book, therefore they can actually uh, postpone the payment of them. I don't want to get into the... Uh, it's, it's actually an antagonism to neo-monetarist, um, uh, neo-libertarian... How far will I go? <laughs> um, and the antagonism that... And I was just thinking um, about the Beau Morris project because you could see an instance where a council and a state government together would decide that that precinct was actually a good thing and therefore provide funding structures that allowed the retention of the buildings rather than the um, endless redevelopment and making money out of the turnover of the the development and it kind of goes to you know like there were a number of years ago when um, it's not that long ago when nobody would spend any money on rail because they said rail doesn't make any money it's hopeless you know it's a dead duck you've got to build more freeways all of a sudden somebody said no we'll build rail we'll actually make it work everybody you know it's on the Sandringham line I can tell you it's a nightmare it's like Tokyo um, but it's just that much different 
when somebody decides to spend on public infrastructure. And I guess maybe there's also a thing that, you know, you could think of a way of, of restructuring heritage that it had a, an, a board of experts or something who could say, these buildings are the most important buildings in the state. These are the... I mean, there is a thing like that now, but there's a kind of industry around writing. The kind of... The, the industry has been so pervasive that it's kind of diluted its own effectiveness, I should say. But So there's got to be a way in which the government wakes up to its responsibilities. They have in other areas, like in public transport. They should be within um, urban uh, fabric, and, and it's, that is landscapes, public spaces, buildings, and they, sh they should be protectors of that. Um, I just wanted to say something a little bit about advocacy here. Um, I don't think that we can expect... It's quite interesting, you know. I went into the Fed Square thing with a lot of outrage and you expect everybody's just going to understand and just agree with you. Um, and to the most part, when you explain things to people, they do agree with you. Well, they agree with me. Honest. Um, but... Yeah, but, but what it is is it's... Um, you know, if you look at it, like the people that we've contacted, there's this ecology of activism... That's at work. So the Institute can do certain things and its hands are a little tied in, in some areas in this, this issue, but, you know, they helped along with the Planning Institute and AILA, they funded the debate. Um, they helped put on the debate along with Melbourne Open House. Um, you know, the National Trust have put it forward for heritage listing. We're the shouty activists, although we're actually quite nice, which is a bit unfortunate, but, you know, I'd like to be more of a hard-ass. Um, you know, but there, and, and then you start to talk to, well, you know, then you start to talk to the politicians, right? So then you start to talk to local uh, councillors who are, the City of Melbourne have been incredibly cut out of this and most of them, almost all of them are actually incredibly grumpy at it because there's a memorandum of understanding between the City of Melbourne and the state government that, um, that projects of significance will be run by the City of Melbourne and this was not the case and it's very openly addressed in, a, in, in the planning report um, that we've seen. And then you start to talk, you know, to the Greens or to the Socialists or to, you know, or you try to talk to Labor and you try to talk to the Liberals. And, and what you understand is that people don't get this immediately. You actually have to build that voice and you have to build that advocacy and you have to bring as many people into that advocacy um, as possible. And then you start to think that maybe if you can get the right people in the room, there could be a shift in these conversations. You could start... Somebody texted me the other day going, oh, my God, my Year 11 students just use Fed Square as an example of corporate takeover of public space. And I'm like, yes, that's... All, you know, so, so it's about kind of building a voice and advocating for what you want and advocating for the importance of these, pla these unique places. Um, yeah. Can I just say something, you know, so I've been hearing about the, the Fed Square debate from, from, from you today and from just being in Melbourne for the last couple of days. And it seems to me that it's not actually about historic architecture. It's about the legacy use of public space. And it's something that is actually happening all over the world, all over all over the United States also, about how these corporations, which are very savvy about how they're making money, they made lots and lots of money about privatizing and monetizing our, our digital behavior on our phones, on our computers, on the internet, and now that they are, have exhausted that source of, of wealth in advertising revenue, are now moving to monetize that in the public realm. And I think, you know, there... It's a big wake-up call for a lot of us who care for the civic commons, for living together um, across difference in public, and that that space is very important and needs to be protected. And there aren't great rules about how actually to protect that, and especially not great funding to ensure that that protection um, is is pr is protected in the future. So. Um, it's been interesting to hear this conversation, which I have a lot in my head, especially in San Francisco, where a lot of these technology companies are based, being discussed under the auspices of historic preservation, um, because I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's much, much, it's much bigger than that. So just, do you have, from um, the Denmark, you know, from being in Denmark and your experience there, because you're, do you have anything to add to this, that from, from um, how it might how it compares... I know you've only been in Melbourne two days, so I probably hit you hard with that question, but um, how how things might be done differently, say, in Denmark, or would you have the same issues? I mean, how, how does this discussion compare? I think the answer is it 
depends. Um, but I think one thing that Copenhagen has been incredibly successful of is defining the city values based on shared values uh, and on what makes a good city. And essentially, we put mo the majority of our value on what is in between the buildings and, um, is, and including people in the conversation about what kind of city they want Copenhagen to be in the future. So this, this whole like notion of bringing people on board in the decision making is critical, I think. Um, it's sometimes challenging in a social democratic society where we pay a lot of taxes <laughs> and expect the city to fix everything for us. Um, but there's a change process in Copenhagen happening right now where people take a lot more ownership. And I think that relates very much to this like commercialization of the public realm as well. Um, conversations around like keeping change out of the city, like we don't want Starbucks, for instance, and uh, we want to value our local coffee places over that, and they're more, they're just better uh, as part of the conversation. But I think um, in related to sort of heritage buildings and heritage in the city of Copenhagen, I think a lot of the value is put on what is in between the buildings. And when it comes to the buildings, for instance, with housing in Copenhagen, some of the most uh, expensive and most sought after real estate is these like small scale duplex housing, row housing, um, the potato rows, and where there are people that were in the army used to live uh, back in the days. You can't do anything to that housing, but that's where people want to live. And part of why they want to live there is because there is a social fabric around that housing out in the public realm that allows your kids to be outside in the street and still be safe, even though there is traffic. Um, but I think that, um, just sort of bring it back, it's, it's very much about understanding what people want and care about in their city. And, um, and, and then the, the heritage becomes maybe less sort of a visible topic and it's also not the driver or the tool to create change. It is the, the common good and what people want from their city that's the driver. Um, we might just wrap up with a comment from everyone, but I suppose, I mean, it's an interesting that you talk about people and about how they build our cities because, I mean, as we say, we talk about, you know, money and politics and a whole bunch of other things, but people can make change, as you've said. I mean, I remember, it must, what, 20 years ago when they were redeveloping the NGV and there was talk of pulling out the water wall or the, you know, and the uproar uh, about that and the the people who stop that happening. I mean, that it is proof that people can make a difference and I think that's, um, you know, it's okay for us to sit back and let Apple... Is that working? Let Apple take over the square and let these things happen, but it will keep happening if we don't advocate or stick up for the things we think are important about our city, whether that be, you know, the Beaumaris houses and whatever. So um, I might start with you, Matt, and we'll just do a quick run-through if anyone's got... You You don't have to talk, but if you had a comment that you want to just wrap up with as closing statements. Uh, yeah, I think ad ad advocacy is the key thing. I think it's, um, it's about getting on board, it's about getting involved um, on an individual level. Um, everybody can get involved with things like Bo Morris Modern or the Robin Boyd Foundation. You can become members of those. It's, I think it's $20 to get involved with Bo Morris, but it's about a, a, a weight of numbers and about, I think it's about the process. I think there's a, there's a problem with the process. I think the process of how we evaluate heritage is, needs to be, it sounds to me like it needs a, needs a review yeah. and numbers, weight of numbers. That's all. Short comment building on that. I think going back to the metrics and understanding what matters to people, it's really important to maybe reassess and, and come up with some new evaluation criteria that can, can help in the conversation with places like Federation Square. Um, I started with talking about brutalism and the Viking Ship Museum. One thing that I wanna just add to that, um, that, that, that ties to this and, and this like rowing the ship together, that's what the Vikings did. They didn't have, they had a leader in combat, but when it came to getting to where they needed to go, they all rode together, also the leader. So I think this like notion of like shared interests, fighting for this together is really key. Just a really short comment to say how, 
how refreshing it is to be in a place where you um, honor traditional owners of the land in, in all sort of public conversations has been a refreshing experience for me as an American. So thank you. Um, I'm quite interested in um, the common good and obviously public space. And I think the way we define these things is different everywhere. It's cultural and it's contextual. And therefore, you know, we as citizens negotiate the definitions of those things. So to actually be part of those conversations, whether they end up in the right place or not, I don't know whether we're going to win the war against Apple, but to actually be part of those conversations and to start people thinking more about public space and their, their attachment to community through um, the spaces we live in is really, really important. So I would recommend that everybody get involved. I'm just going to be slightly boring and talk about depreciation and say that it's, an, it's a trick invented by accountants to, um, uh, to allow things to be demolished. And every likelihood that Fed Square will get a heritage listing, even if not this year, it will happen sometime in the future, at which point it will have an infinite life. That's what heritage registration means. It, the people of Victoria agree that it will last forever and at that point depreciation rate effectively should be zero. So... I think uh, it's really just a bit on what Matt said earlier. It's really about everyone getting involved. Um, you look at the fundraise, uh, the um, what's it called, the crowdfunding for Sirius. I think they raised fifty thousand dollars for their legal action with twenty dollar um, amounts. The target was originally thirty, and it it it, it um, exceeded that. So I think people often think, "Oh, what can I do?" It is about just getting involved and um, advocating. You're speechless. <laughs> I'm speechless. Um, picking, uh, it's not good to erase history. Um, picking up on the Indigenous, the, if we've learned anything, how appalling it is that we erase history and forget certain parts of our, our past. It is about a legacy and it's, there are key moments and key buildings and key places which we must keep. And they're not just the icons of architecture. They're a much broader spread. Okay, um, thank you everybody and thank you all for coming. So thank you for um, contributing to the talk tonight, guys. Appreciate it. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.